Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Melanie Hamlet. And I certainly don't say my favorite word anymore, pussy, unless I'm like, hey, you want to eat this? <laughs> now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Mini Groove Orchestra behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Masculinity. Two stories, one told live and one a radio-style story about boys uh, in the process of becoming men. This is also the week that we've debuted our latest Amazon original story. It's called My Boy, Their Son by Mariah McCarthy. Now, Mariah told a version of this story on the podcast at one time, but the Amazon original story version is so expanded and so nuanced. It's it's practically a whole new story. I was blown away by it. I highly recommend you check it out. You know, you can download it onto your Kindle. You can listen to it as an audiobook. Each of the five Amazon original stories that we've curated with Amazon are just phenomenal. The other four are in a collection called This Can't Be Happening. But this latest one, My Boy, Their Son by Mariah McCarthy, is available now. Uh, Just search for it by title or by the author's name on Amazon. Let's get to our first story today. Vin Brew pitched this story to us years ago and then was just, you know, 
consistent about reminding us that he was out there. This A lot of people have to do this. A lot of people end up sharing stories on the show years after they first run it by us. Vin told this one at the Risk Live show at Caveat in New York City just a month or so ago. And you can find him at vincentbrew.com. Here he is now. This is Vin Brew with a story we call Heroes and Villains. So I'm not someone who likes to brag about how I was into something before it was cool, but I was definitely into comic books and superheroes before it was cool. And I'm not sure it's even cool now or ever will be, so I'm totally not bragging. But uh, they're certainly more mainstream now with all these big movies and TV shows and the whole nerd culture that exists at the moment. When I was growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, there was no nerd culture. If you were into comic books, you were just a nerd, and you were picked on and made fun of constantly. Especially when you got to high school and everyone's moving on to, like, parties and sex and drinking, and you're still wearing your Wolverine underpants, you know? (laughs) And uh, I went to this very competitive all-boys prep school where everyone wanted to be, like, a banker or a doctor or a lawyer, and I was like, I want to be Batman, you know, so... (laughs) Everyone thought I was completely insane. There was actually a rumor on the bus after school that my brother had put LSD in my cereal when I was a child, and that's why I was the way that I was. And I was always like, no, he didn't. Shut up. And I would lock myself in my bedroom and cry myself to sleep at night under a blanket of comic books, because that's where the good guys stuck up for kids like me, you know, and... uh, that's why I was very, very lonely. And so I started reaching out to the only people who I figured were as into comic books as I was, and that's the people who were making them. And my favorite comic book creator at the time was this guy named Max Fallis, who was like the uh, hip young rebel rock star of the comic book world. He had just founded his own new company called Pagan Studios, and I loved all these new characters. And he was also, uh, he started in this commercial that was airing for a while where he was in his studio being interviewed by this really hip film director, and I was like, you see, guys, I told you, it's on TV, comics are cool, right, guys? Guys, where's everybody going? Uh, Still not cool, but that commercial changed my life, because in it, he said something like, his parents were never on board with his career choice until they found out he could make a lot of money doing it, and that blew my mind, because... In my spare time, I was always coming up with my own superheroes and characters and living in my own fantasy world. And it had never occurred to me that you could make a living doing this. So when I realized that you could be successful and not have to be a banker or doctor or lawyer, I was like, this is what I'm doing with my life. And what started as a hobby quickly became a very serious obsession. And I started sending letters every day to all of my favorite comic book companies, just sending in my story ideas and character ideas and asking them a million questions, how they broke into the industry, what types of pens and pencils they used. And in the back of comic books, there's usually a couple pages where they publish fan letters, and I really wanted to get in there. And I'd been writing letters every day for months and never had any luck, and I was getting pretty discouraged. And then one day I flipped open the back of one of my favorite comics, and there staring me in the face was my letter and my name. I was like, holy shit, I fucking finally did it! You know? 
I wanted to shout this great news from the mountaintops. But at the same time, I did not want anyone to find out about this, because seeing my name, Vin Brew, in print, I was like, I don't want to be associated with that guy. He's kind of a loser. And I was also afraid if anyone from high school found out about this, that the wedgies would never end. And I just, I was tired of wedgies. So uh, I was like, I was going to create an alter ego for myself who I could not only hide behind, but who would be the hero that I didn't think Vin Brew was ever going to be. And that's when I came up with the brilliant idea for Idea Boy. That's right. <laughs> great idea number one right there, batting a thousand. My second great idea was I would take a Sharpie and I would black out all my envelopes except for where the address is and the stamp would go. So that in the sea of white envelopes I imagined all the other fans sending in, my black envelope would stand out and they'd be like, who's this genius idea boy? We gotta read this one. And as crazy as it sounds, it worked because Idea Boy's letters started getting published in the back of all of these comic books, like week after week. And everyone was like, who's this mysterious idea boy? And uh, like soon, like one of the editors at Pagan Studios started writing back to me at my house like we were like pen pals and this other guy who was an assistant started calling me long distance from the studio in california to talk shop with me i was a 15 year old kid living in new jersey and this guy's making a long distance phone call to my house and it was very encouraging to me and uh, my mom took note of this she was always very supportive of my endeavors and so for my 16th birthday she got me the best present ever which was a trip to the san diego comic-con <laughs> The biggest, yes, comic book event of the year. And I was so excited I was going to finally be amongst my fellow nerds in California, and I was going to get to meet all these guys that I worshipped and adored in person finally. And so we flew out there, and Saturday morning I wake up and I run right to the convention and immediately go right to the Pagan Studios booth where all my favorite artists and writers are set up, giving out autographs and sketches and stuff. And I got really nervous. Because uh, I hadn't actually told any of these people that I was coming out there. Because as successful as Idea Boy was, I was still very nervous and awkward and shy. And I didn't want them to meet me and be like, oh, you're Idea Boy? Oh, that's disappointing. You know, I didn't want there to be this pressure on me. So I wasn't sure if I was even going to tell anybody. But then I got to the front of the line and one of the artists was like, hey, what's your name, kid? And I was like, uh, I, I, Idea Boy. And he was like, holy, like, the Idea Boy? Holy shit, everybody get over here. You gotta meet Idea Boy. <laughs> and all these guys who I was waiting in line to get autographs from, like, rushed over to greet me like I was their hero. Like, I was this celebrity. I was like, this is the most surreal moment of my life. And they were like, what are you doing for lunch? Can we take you out for lunch? And I was like, yeah, let me just check my, yes, what is happening right now? <laughs> this is crazy. And these guys took me out to lunch, and they basically offered me a job. I mean, again, I was 16, living in New Jersey with my parents at the time, so... But they were like, when you're old enough, we'd love to put you to work at the studio. Like, you got a lot of great ideas, as an idea boy should. And, uh, you got a lot of passion. And, uh, you know, they wanted to, like, groom me to be this future star of the industry. And it was the first time I ever felt proud of myself in my life. Like, these guys who I admired recognized some talent in me and my hard work had made that happen and so I felt good about myself for the first time ever and it was an incredible day there was just one thing missing and that was that Max Fallis my idol was supposed to be at the convention but he had to cancel his appearance because he was behind on a deadline as always and uh, I was kind of bummed but I really didn't care because I was on cloud nine at the time 
but as lunch was wrapping up, he was like, uh, one of the guys was like, hey, if you can get up to our studio tomorrow, we would love to meet you there when we wrap up here. We'll give you a tour of the place. You'll get to meet Max. What do you say? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is the icing on the cherry on top of the cake. Like, all my dreams are coming true. So the next day, my mom and I take the train ride up there. It was like a two-hour train ride to where the studio was. And it was located in this little uh, like corporate office plaza. And we get in. And there's a security guard at the front. We tell him we're there for a tour. And he was like, yeah, whatever, go on up. So we go on up to the studio. And it's very quiet. It's a Sunday afternoon. There's nobody at the reception desk. So my mom and I just have a seat. And just looking around, and there's this white light just flooding out from the studio. Like, oh, like this is where the magic happens. This is where my favorite artists and writers create my favorite characters. And where I now, I'm now thinking I'm going to be spending my future creating superheroes that will inspire generations of future dorks like me. And then suddenly from out of the white light, like a god emerging from a heavenly cocoon, stepped Max Fallis himself in the flesh, walking towards us. And I was like, holy shit, my heart started pounding. I was like, they must have told him my dear boy's here. And he's coming out to personally, you know, greet me and welcome me into the fold. So I got up all excited, and I extended my hand for him to shake. And he went fucking ballistic. Like, who the fuck are you people? Who let you up here? You're trespassing on private property. Get the fuck out of here right now. This was not the welcome wagon I was expecting. And like, I, I was about to be like, it's really great to meet you. But that would have been a lie, because it was terrifying. It was like he had transformed into one of his own supervillains in front of my eyes like with his mouth agape and veins bulging out of his neck. And I was this weird mix of like starstruck and terrified and I, like, I didn't know what to do, just paralyzed. So I was like, ah! Thankfully, my mom spoke up. I was like, excuse me, um, like we came all the way from New Jersey. My son is a huge fan of yours and these guys from your company said that we could have a tour. And he was like, bullshit, everyone's still at the convention. Like, you guys are trespassing. If you don't get the fuck out of here right now, I'm calling the cops and having you arrested. Like, it was insane. I have no idea to this day why he was that angry. Like, I don't know if he had a mountain of cocaine and a bunch of hookers in the other room, but, like, he wanted us to get out of there now. So we ran back to the elevator and uh, went downstairs, and I was, like, physically trembling from the... The encounter and uh, I was still holding out hope like these guys are gonna show up they're gonna talk to him we're gonna have a big laugh about this someday nothing's fucked here you know but at the same time I knew that it was totally fucked because in my heart I knew that this, this spell I had been under for so many years was broken and this fantasy world that I had taken refuge in for so long from the bullies and the cruelty of the outside world had been irreparably breached by this guy who i thought was uh, my hero and who i wanted to be like for so many years and who i gave so much of my time and creativity and money to and turned out to be such a huge dick and so uh i knew there was no going back but we still waited for like another hour and uh, then we had to get home and i just straight up ugly cried the entire way back to new jersey and i never read another comic book in my life after that i uh yeah well it's I stopped believing in heroes that day. And as sad as that is, I never stopped believing in myself, though, because I knew that whatever, thank you, whatever success Idea Boy had had, I knew that, like, that was me. Like, I was the Idea Boy behind Idea Boy. <laughs> and that, that stayed with me. And I was also just less afraid of the real world, because, like, that experience was so traumatic 
that it made the everyday bullying of high school seem really trivial. Like, I heard that old rumor on the bus one day, and I was like, you know what, guys? My brother did put LSD in my cereal, and I am tripping fucking balls right now. You guys see that gorilla chasing after the bus? Oh, my God, he's going to get us. Ah! And all these kids started laughing. They were like, keep going. Tell us more, you know? And so every day after school, I would hold court with these kids, you know, just to a rapt audience of my former bullies. And I realized that I could just redirect that creativity and passion into other things, and I kept writing, and got into NYU for film, and uh, started writing more stories and making little videos, and I started teaching myself different instruments. I started a band and started living in reality for the first time in my life, and as a result of that, I've made some of the most incredible, wonderful friends who I love dearly and collaborators. I met my amazing wife. And I'm happy to say that I'm no longer that lonely kid crying into his comic books every night. Which is why, as much as I would love to see him tied up and slowly dipped into a vat of boiling water, I would like to say thank you to Max for that experience and, and who it forced me to become. And uh, sometimes I wonder how my life would be different had things gone differently that day. But my least favorite comic book when I was growing up was called What If? And it was always like, what if Peter Parker hadn't been bitten by a radioactive spider? I'm like, who gives a shit? He wouldn't have been Spider-Man, you know? <laughs> so I feel like uh, in some ways, Idea Boy needed to die so that Vin Brew could live. And now I go to parties and people are like, have you seen the new Avengers? And I'm like, nope. And they're like, you fucking loser. And then they give me wedgies. So <laughs> I can't win. My ass is killing me, so I'm going to go see a proctologist. You guys have been great. Thanks for listening to my story. This is Risk. This is Powers behind me now. And we just heard from Vin Brew, the artist formerly known as Idea Boy. Listen, I want to let you guys know no one has time to go to the post office. It's all the traffic, the waiting in lines. It's a hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending out invoices or an online seller shipping out products, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. You just use your computer to print official U.S 
U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail's ready, you just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com, enter Risk. Now, our final story on this week's episode. It's a long one, but it's Fascinating. It's one of our very, very favorite storytellers, Melanie Hamlet. You know, Melanie has an article right now in Harper's Bazaar that has gone very, very viral. People are sharing it all over the place, and people are writing articles about this article. The article is titled, Men Have No Friends and Women Bear the Burden." Definitely look it up. It is fascinating and it's kind of interesting the way that the themes that are explored in that article sort of complement this story we're about to hear. Anyway, you can find out a lot more about Melanie at MelanieHamlet.com. And here she is now with a story we call One of the Boys. So I'm sitting in a training for this uh, 23-day backpacking expedition that I'm going to be leading. (laughs) And I am with a small class of trainees. There's like 10 of us. And Phil, who never smiles, is the guy leading this training. He's like this stocky, muscular, like short dude who literally never smiles. And he's he's been our trainer for three weeks now. And we've been on backpacking trips. We've learned everything we need to learn. And now we're learning about how to deal with conflict resolution. So I'm sitting next to my co-instructors for the whole season. We're all like 25. Seven ish, you know. Laura's like your classic hippy dippy granola <laughs> dreadlocks to her elbow kind of uh, outdoor instructor. Super feminine and like earthy and warm, you know, but tough. And then there's Evan, who is like your woke white guy who's legitimately woke, who's always checking his privilege. He's from Boston, he comes from money, he played like squash. But he's so aware. He's always pushing himself to become more aware. And so it's the three of us are going to be instructing this this 23-day backpacking course. And we're sitting there, and Phil, who doesn't smile, looks straight to us when he was like, and some of you are going to have boys, <laughs> and you guys are having only boys. And none of these kids in y'all's program want to be here. This is not your classic outdoor trip like the other programs These are not the yay, let's go backpacking, kids. These are like, fuck you, you fucking fuck. I fucking hate you, kids. And he's like, so now we're going to go over some conflict resolution stuff. First thing you should know is these kids are going to fight. And that doesn't really surprise me all that much. Boys fight, whatever. And then he looks straight at me and Laura and he's like, and you two are the ones who need to break it up. 
I mean, I like play my cool, right? Because of the three of us instructors, I'm probably the most manly. I'm like the tomboy. I can like fake no emotion really well. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, okay. And he's like, no, really, you two need to break it up. You need to jump in there. And I'm sitting here thinking, what the fuck? I don't want to do that. And I'm calmly like, why doesn't Evan break it up? And he's like, because the kids might actually punch him. But if you have a woman between two fighting kids, they're going to back down because, like, they don't want to, like, hit their mom or their sister or a girl. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, but that, like, doesn't really happen much, right? And he's like, oh, no, it happens a lot. Actually, that's the whole point. You want this to happen. <laughs> like, thinking, hmm, you want to take angry boys out into the woods for 23 days and make them angrier <laughs> to the point where it gets violent? He can see I'm a little, like, no, I'm not very convinced as to why this is a good idea. And he's like, look, okay, so, like, these dudes... They don't, like, know how to deal with their shit, man. They don't know how to deal with their life. And if they don't learn conflict resolution, their life is not going to go well. And the point of this trip is to teach them conflict resolution. So you take them out of the woods, the weather's going to beat the shit out of them. They're going to annoy the fuck out of each other. Their issues are going to be coming to the surface constantly, and your job is to push it so that they have to deal with it. This was not really what I signed up for. (laughs) Actually, Evan was the one who convinced me to take this fucking job. And this was like the company or like the role that was like the Harvard of outdoor education. This is where it started. So part of this was about my ego. I wanted to like, I was a little bit burnt out from the outdoor world, to be honest. I've been doing it for all my 20s, living in my truck, doing the seasonal work, going from California to New Mexico to Washington, all over, doing the raft guides, key instructor. And I was a little bored. Because it was too easy. And Evan had sensed that. And he presented this job to me as a big challenge, you know. <laughs> and he was like, no, man, this is magical, Mel. Because you see, like, real change. Like, they're tough. They're hard kids. But, like, you actually walk away feeling like you made a difference. And you'd be perfect for this. And so, you know, he convinced me. And I'd also been like, yeah, but I'm not really into, like, the touchy-feely stuff, you know, that, like, comes along with this kind of, like, course. And he's like... Whatever, man. You're the most fearless person I've ever met. There's nothing you can't do. Like, he's kind of right. I basically kind of had that attitude. I've jumped into, I became a raft guide having only rafted once in my life as a client, as a teenager. (laughs) You know, I convinced the boss to hire me. Skiing, I really didn't know how to ski. I became a ski instructor. Pretty much everything I do, I throw myself into it without any fear. And I wasn't really afraid of boys either because besides being kind of a boy myself, a tomboy, I've worked with all men my entire career up to this point, especially in the rafting industry. It is full of boys and not even like easy guys. You know, you think they're these hippie, like cool, whatever. No, man, they're talking so much shit about the women who come off that bus. My first rafting job, there's a guy, he was like 40-something, and most of us were like in our early 20s. And he was like that one bad apple who influences the whole group. I called him wedding ring guy because he wore a fake wedding ring. So he said because desperate chicks love going after dudes they think they can't get. The other guys, I could tell, really weren't into doing it, but they did it anyway. He would rate every girl that came off the bus by their fuckability. And I don't just mean, like, when I say girl, I mean literally girls. Like, teenage girls sometimes. Like, oh, I fucked that one. And I had put up with this shit all summer long because this is my first year. I didn't, I didn't want to risk my status as, like, the cool one. So at the end of the season, 
just for my own self-respect almost. We were at a bar all hanging out and I was like, sometimes the shit you say about women, like, it's kind of annoying, dude. And he's like, what are you talking about? You know, like, he doesn't talk like that, but... He's like, what do you mean? I was like, because you literally rate the fuckability of all these girls. You sexualize all these girls, even like teenagers and even like children almost. And he was like, calm down, tiger. And he took a sip of his fucking pint, his micro brew, you know. And it was like, you're being a little sensitive, don't you think? And I actually liked this person, this guy. I liked all my coworkers, but I was like, fuck this. I knew that this was a subject you can't touch with these guys, with men. Call them on being sexist in this world. The next job that I did, it was the same shit, and I just learned, don't say anything. But these guys took it even farther and would not just sexualize the women, they would pick apart their bodies. They would make fun of women's cellulite. They called it hail damage. Look at the hail damage on that one. And actually, one of the guys, his name, I call him military. He was actually a good friend. I really liked this guy. But when he was around the other men, he was saying, look at the hail damage on that one. And then the other guy, I'll call him bro bra pow pow, because <laughs> he was the classic like, yeah, bro. Uh, and he was like the guy who egged it all on. He was constantly talking even more shit. One day in the van, he was like, yeah, you know, like, I hate hairy vaginas. They're fucking dirty. Fuck that shit. And that set me off because not only did I have fucking cellulite at the time, I was bulimic. I was throwing up five fucking times a day to be fuckable, to be beautiful. Despite being, you know, tomboy and tough, like... I'm killing myself trying to look beautiful so, because my fear is that men talk about us this way. And sure enough, they do. But when he said this dirty vagina bullshit, I also had a hairy vagina because I didn't watch porn. I didn't know that I'm unfuckable unless I look like a child. Anyway, so I like lashed out at him. I was like, fuck you, dude. Like, not every woman has to shame me, 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 me. And they go, whoa, because it's the first time I'd stood up to these guys. Wow, what are you, like a feminist or something? And we're just sitting in the van and I'm like, I want to fucking punch this guy so bad because feminist is the worst thing you can be in a group of men. And then he said the worst thing that you could ever say to me. Well, I thought you were cool, Melanie. Ah, I have worked so hard to be the cool girl. I had the secret password to the boys club, man. They all fucking love me. I worked with a few other women, but I'm the one that they would invite out for beers. I'm the one that they hung out with, that they were could be themselves around. And now I like I wouldn't dare risk that status. So I shut my fucking mouth and instead I made fun of him. And I was like, whatever, dude, your dick is so fucking small. I bet when you fucking girl, it's like feeding a whale a tic-tac, you know, or some shit like that. And I'd be like, tongue my shitter, motherfucker. Like I was, I didn't realize I had a mouth this dirty. And from this point on, for years from then on, I was like the dirty fucking sexual, like, girl, the cool girl who could, you know, who could one-up any dude. I kind of took pride in that. You know, it's that whole, if you can't beat them, join them. I mean, I guess if you're going to be a woman in a boys club, you got to fucking, what, keep calm and carry on? Just pretend like none of this shit bothers you and just do your job and become one of them, you know? I mean, it's like that pretty much in any all-boys club. So we finally meet our kids after three weeks of training. 
the parents drop them off. We immediately take them to our home base and outfit them with gear, kind of set the tone and like the rules because <laughs> there's going to be a lot of rules. The first thing we do is actually have a bin and we're like, all drugs and things that you don't want us to find go in this bin. <laughs> you know, like, we won't ask about them, but get rid of them. And I'm like, to, to Evan, I was like, no one actually brought drugs. And he's like, Mel, do not trust any of these kids until they earn your trust. You know, I'm like, okay. <laughs> now, these kids kind of seemed vanilla to me you know like they're all like 12 to 15 year olds they're all like white dudes who come from like money and like they're like not dicks yet (laughs) so I'm not I'm not really all that intimidated about them but I've got my game on you know first impressions go a long way so I go over some Giardia protocol which Giardia is this terrible disease you get from drinking water with deer shit in it basically So you have to filter your water or put iodine in it. I'm giving the whole spiel. And one of the kids, he reminds me of, I just call him Ferris Bueller because he's like a good kid. He's funny and like, whatever. He's wearing like a tuxedo t-shirt. He's like, do we really have to do that though? I mean, come on. Like, well, I mean, if you don't want to like fart out of your mouth and like shit all over each other, like I don't fucking care. Like, don't do it. Just don't do it. See what happens. You know, just like really kind of antagonistic with them. Like, because I'm trying to establish my authority here. I want these kids to respect me. I want them to know that I'm way fucking tougher than any of them. So don't even try me. Right. And then Evan comes over and he's like, well, like what Mel's trying to say is that self-care is an important part of life. But especially this trip, because we are out in the middle of nowhere. And if you get Giardia, you're putting the whole group at risk. So you need to take care of yourself and you have to filter your water. Don't be lazy. And they're like, okay. So we had to go over a few more rules. And one of the rules, we would never tell these kids they can't cuss. Because we cuss, of course. Fuck shit, blah, blah, blah. But they can't say any derogatory language. You know, I'm like, look, you can't say, you know, like gay, fag, bitch. Like, you know the words. You can't say those words. This one kid, he's like a stoner, but like the quarterback, like golden boy kind of guy. Like, he's like beautiful kid. He's way taller than him. He's going to be like the alpha. There's no doubt about it, right? He's like, what, that's gay. We can't say gay. And we're like, no, you can't say gay. And then one of the, the <laughs> so like one of them, <laughs> this little kid, like the smallest one. I'm going to call him Urkel because he actually reminded me of Urkel from Family Matters. <laughs> like, uh, you know, he's just such cartoonishly a dork and small. But he really wanted to be cool. So he'd talk like a gangster. He'd be like, yo, son. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, he's like, yo, what the fuck? That's fucking bullshit, man. Like, why can't we say pussy? You have a pussy. We have a, you know, whatever. Like, they don't understand it. And we're like, you have a free pass on all cuss words, but anything that is meant to tear someone down, which any words that evolve around women or someone's sexuality or their race or any of that shit is not acceptable and we're not going to let you get away with it. So yeah, when he says pussy, of course I'm like, no, you can't say pussy. I mean, I've been hearing men use the word pussy to call other men weak. And I'm sorry, but the vagina is like the strongest thing on the planet. It fucking is where life comes from. Like, oh, come on. Like, no. Bitch, pussy, all these words that have been used to tear women down are not allowed to tear gay people down, anyone down, not allowed. And they're like, we gave her a whole spiel. I mean, we fucking hounded these guys. And basically what we would end up doing is spending the next week 
every time they said gay or fag or anything, we're like, can't say that. Until they finally stopped saying it because they were so fucking annoyed with us, really. They were like, fine. You have no idea how many times teenage boys say the word fag and gay. It is literally their favorite word other than balls or nuts. <laughs> boys talk about their balls literally all the time. That's, oh, my balls are sweaty. Oh, that hurt my balls. Like it's, They're obsessed with their balls. I don't know why. Maybe men talk about it too, but teenage boys, that's all they talk about. And these kids talked about their balls so much that... Gold Bond became the coveted item on this thing. They were barter for Gold Bond. Who's got the gold? Like, because only a couple guys were smart enough to bring Gold Bond, which apparently makes your balls not as sweaty. I don't know. We got so tired of hearing about balls that we were like, dude, can you guys talk about anything but balls? Just to, like, piss us off because they couldn't say cunt, pussy, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) They made up a whole song about balls and how they're sweaty. Like, a chorus and everything. And they would hike to the ball song. But, you know, it would cheer them up. It made the day go by faster. The first week of this course is rough. (laughs) These kids have no idea how to camp. They're kind of like any pack of animals, like dogs or humans. They're kind of jockeying for power. And the pothead quarterback is obviously, because of his sheer height and good looks, is up there. One of the other ones that quickly rose to the top is a guy who was very quiet, but he was full with that quiet rage. You just know not to fuck with this dude. He has blonde hair, blue eyes. He's a very strikingly handsome guy. He's big. He could be a football player, but he's not interested in that. He's wearing like a John Deere hat, and he has this T-shirt, which pretty much summarizes his whole personality. It's written out in pictures. I don't give a rat's ass. (laughs) It's a picture of a donkey and a rat. And he doesn't. He does not want to be here. He doesn't really complain much, but you don't want to set this guy off. And all the kids are a little afraid of them, I can tell. Just they kind of give him his space. And then the other big kid, who's like probably bigger than all of them, but he's just like that Boy Scout man. He loves being here. I'm not even sure why he's here, honestly. I don't know what he did to get on this course, but he's really positive. So there's those three guys. And then there's, you know, Urkel. And then there's the guy who's almost as big as, who's a little bit bigger than Urkel, but is very tiny. I'm going to call him Napoleon because he's the most classic case of Napoleon syndrome I've ever seen. He's like a Coke can that's been shaken up, but hasn't been cracked yet. He's got so much energy. He's gotten in trouble for fights. Like he's like that little dog that barks and you're like, whoa, don't fuck with that little dog. You know, we actually let him run laps on a regular basis because he really doesn't want to fight, but he has so much energy and anger that like... We need an outlet for it. And this is after hiking 10 miles a day. (laughs) We let him run laps around the trees. (laughs) So these guys are kind of in the middle, right? You've got the big guys at the top, the ones in the middle. Another one in the middle is kind of a medium-sized kid, a little bit overweight. But we call him Pigpen because he's like the fucking nastiest kid. He clearly like... None of these kids are changing clothes for 23 days. I'm pretty sure this kid is like that normally. He probably doesn't ever change his underwear. He's a mess. He might as well have, like, dirt following him everywhere. And he has a resting bitch face. He's just weird, you know? But he's not small, so he's not getting picked on. And then there's fucking Joey. Fucking Joey is the scapegoat of the group. 
He's not as small as like Urkel, but he's kind of small. But he's so annoying that all the kids want to beat him up all the time. Everything is fucking Joey's fault. You know, like someone farts in the tent. A different tent. It's fucking Joey. You know what I mean? If somebody and he would use that his power to annoy them more like he's the slowest hiker. So he purposely hikes slower to fuck with them. They hated him. There's always a scapegoat and fucking Joey was a scapegoat. But what was fascinating to see is every day on the trail, there was a new way that they would test out these roles and this power dynamic. The smaller boys were always carrying way more weight than they should. They would volunteer to carry the water, the tortillas, the blocks of cheese, the heavy shit to impress the big kids. The other kids are carrying like the fly of a tent. And I get it. As a woman in the rafting industry, I always carried the biggest fucking boat. I understand that mentality. But it's just that learning curve. Like, we're up until 2 a.m. teaching them how to clean fucking pots and pans. And every night at the end of the night, we would have a meeting where we made all these kids talk about their day and their feelings. And they fucking hated that part. But we made every single one of them talk about, even if they were like, I hated it. You know, we had to, like, let them get them in the habit of talking to each other and expressing how they felt. So after enough time, they finally are in the groove. We create a system where, like, they know what they do every day. They get up, they pack up their tent. You know, there's an order because this is all chaos. Every day they have no idea what they're doing. They don't know how long they're hiking. We don't know if a storm is moving in. We don't know if a kid's going to have a meltdown or someone's going to fall. Like, you never know. And one night, by the way, I'm the official runner. Of course, Laura is the medic because she just takes care of people. And Evan is like the leader, so he always has to stay. He has a satellite phone because he has the more experience, not because he's a man. <laughs> and I'm the runner, so any anything that happens, I'm the one who leaves. I have like a backpack, a tiny backpack in my backpack if a kid runs away, if there's any emergency situation. So... One night, I get a little, like, they can't actually knock on tents, so they go, knock, knock. And I get a little, knock, knock, on our tent, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, you never want that in the middle of the night. And Ferris Bueller, you know, the funny kid, is like, Mel, like, we got, like, a problem. Uh, Me and fucking Joey aren't doing so good. We've been shitting all night, and now we're, like, throwing up, and we don't know, like, what to do. Me and Evan and Laura look at each other and we're like, God damn it, Giardia. They didn't fucking filter their water. I knew it. So I end up having to take these kids to the hospital. We have to satellite phone Phil, who never smiles, who is definitely not going to smile over this situation, and meet him at the trailhead. And he takes a van and we go to the closest hospital. So this is the first time I've been alone with just two of the kids because we are a group. We're always together, all of us. So the whole group dynamic is always the same. So it's me and these two kids in the waiting room. They're totally different when they're not around. They're like, fucking Joey is not annoying because him and Ferris Bueller get along really well. Ferris Bueller's almost like his little like older brother and is like you know, playful and like trying to console him. And we play like shoots and ladders because there's all these like kid games in this children's hospital that we're at. I'm actually having fun with them and actually kind of like them. I, don't, I mean, I usually fucking hate fucking Joey because he's annoying, you know? And I'm like, oh, wow, this is kind of fun. So they each go back, you know, and get examined or whatever. And then uh, Ferris Bueller comes out and, you know, he's like, yep, that's Giardia. 
Shocker. I told you guys. And then uh, the doctor pokes his head out and uh, pulls me aside. And he's like, can you come back here for a minute? Just want to talk to you for a second. So I'm back there with fucking Joey and this doctor. The doctor looks at me and he goes, you guys are on like a backpacking course, right? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you know, this kid has a broken rib, right? I look at Joey and I'm like, what is this dude talking about? And he just shrugs, almost like in a laughing it off kind of way, like, yeah, you know. And so I look at the doctor, I'm like, for real, a broken rib? And he's like, well, yeah, I mean, when a patient comes, we don't just check their intestines, we're checking their whole body. And when I touched his ribs, he winced in pain. And I look at Joey and I'm like, what is this about, dude? What do you, you have a broken rib? And he's like, yeah. So I was in a car accident this summer and, um, my parents had this whole vacation to Bermuda planned and they they knew that if we put it on the med form that you guys wouldn't let me come. So here I am. And I'm like, your parents lied about your broken rib so they could go on vacation? And he was like, yeah, that's kind of what they do. My mind is blown on multiple levels right now because this kid has never mentioned anything about being in pain not once he's just complained the entire fucking time about literally everything that food's too hot the spoon's too heavy you know like whatever everything so is that why you've been complaining this whole week you're in pain and he's like yeah it fucking hurts whatever i'm fine this dude is not fine a backpack when you're backpacking it's super heavy nobody should carry it a backpack or anything on their back when they have a broken rib And I'm looking at him thinking, oh my God, like I thought I knew I understood boys because I've worked with men and boys for so long, but I don't, this is a whole new level of like, what the fuckery? Like it never occurred to him to say, can you help me? Maybe, can you carry some more weight? He never, he mentioned everything but the fucking rib. I thought I was a good actor. I can't imagine that level of poker face. I thought I was good at poker face, but this kid's got me beat, man. It never occurred to me he was hurt or injured. They gave me the first insight into how much all of these kids must be posturing and going by some fucked up script that someone handed them when they were like three and they can't veer from that script. And to say, I'm in pain, help me, I'm really suffering, it's just not in their vocabulary. So now fucking Joey's gone, and that throws off the dynamic of the whole group. Because once your scapegoat's gone, there's a huge vacuum, right? Like a hole. So Pigpen becomes the new fucking Joey, right? Like he's the scapegoat. Everything's his fault. Everyone's always annoyed with him, you know. God, you can't get your shit together. Look, uh, you know what I mean? There's like trail mix following him everywhere. Do you know what I mean? He's just like, you can always find him. He's just a mess. But now he's really a mess. And he's kind of latched himself on to Napoleon because, you know, the scapegoat needs someone to protect them. Like a little dog kind of needs the big dog. And even though Napoleon's small, nobody fucks with him because he's that rabid dog. Like, ah, right? Those two hang out a lot. They have this new friendship now. So one day, it's super humid. You know, this is Vermont. It rained the day before. It's just so muggy and hot. And the horse flies are fucking huge. And they're just eating us alive. I don't give a rat's ass. That guy, you know, the quiet rager, 
he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Like, he's like murdering these flies. Like, bat! <laughs> Every time they land on him, these kids are just bitching. So we stopped to get some water. And now they're obsessed with clean water, right? Because they don't want to be shitting out of their mouth or whatever. And we're not always like right next to them. We keep an eye on them. But like, we let Napoleon do laps. Because, you know, he's not in a good mood. He needs to get out this energy. And all of a sudden, I hear like this, like, like two kids yelling. And, I, and there was like a little bit of a hill. So I run up just in time to see, I don't give a rat's ass. And Napoleon about to fight. I mean, they're all like, rah, rah, rah. And I'm thinking, uh oh, there's my moment. I got to jump between them, you know? And I don't get there in time. Fucking Napoleon pulls his arm back and goes right for I don't give a rat's ass, which is very brave because this is a small kid versus a big kid. And he misses and hits the fucking tree. Like, hard, like, bah! Now, First of all, he's screaming, like, ah! Because, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever punched a tree before here, but uh, it is not as soft as a face, I can tell you that. So I get over there, and I'm like, what the fuck happened, dude? And he's like, well, I mean, I don't want to get kicked off course. So, like, I knew if I punched him that I'd get kicked off, and then I'd get in trouble. But I had to punch something, so I punched a tree. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I actually respect your line of thinking there. <laughs> I'm glad you're not going to get kicked off. But the fuck, dude, look at your hand. I mean, it was already starting to swell. This was this hand is not okay. I don't know if you broke the hand, but this means I've got to fucking take this kid out of here now and go to the urgent care. So I'm a little annoyed. Evan takes, I don't give a rat's ass kid away, and they deal with him. And, you know, everyone's trying to just cool everyone down. And then Pigpen comes up to the tree right next to us he's been like pacing and he goes yeah i'm just so fucking mad this is bullshit and he punches the tree (laughs) me and evan and lauren look at each other and we're like what is happening so i run over to him and i'm like what his hand is fucked up too and i'm like what did you do and he's like i was just mad I don't think this kid has any idea why he punched the tree. So, anyway, I'm trying not to laugh at these kids, but it's funny. I mean, it's so fucked up, it's funny. So, of course, we got to get the satellite phone. Hey, you know, calling Phil who doesn't smile. He's going to be really stoked about this. This is number four out of 12 students that are going to be taken out of the backcountry. Usually, you have no students leave the backcountry for 23 days. This is number four. So, we hike out, like few miles to the fucking trailhead get in the van go to the urgent care and as soon as i get there you know waiting in the waiting room or whatever and when we finally get to the back and waiting so the doctor comes in and he's like how did two kids punch trees like what's the story guys you know and i'm like honestly i'd like to know because i still can't figure it out and pig pen's all like well, my friend got in a fight and I was just mad, you know, like, uh, and that's when Napoleon was like, whatever, dude, you're just fucking copying me. You're not even mad. You're just doing that to fucking copy me. Why don't you just think for yourself? Why do you got to do everything I do? You know, and I'm like, whoa, I'm like learning all of this right now. I'm like, okay, there's like some weird thing here. And you can see that Pigpen is really hurt by this. <laughs> 
like he's like let down that this guy that he wanted to impress so bad is actually not impressed and saw right through his bullshit. And I feel really bad for the kid because these two kids are sitting there with hands like being wrapped up. I still don't get it, but it's even more like another level of like masculinity shit I do not understand. So the doctor, when we leave, the doctor's like, okay, guys. Watch out for those trees, you know, makes a stupid fucking joke on the way out. Um, And the hands are, they're not broken. They're seriously fucked up. Now we have to keep an eye on the fucking hands and the Giardia situation. Like these kids not taking care of themselves very well. We've got another issue we have to monitor now because they don't know how to fucking talk to each other or us. So we're in the groove. And we're at the top of the ridge one day. You know, we've gone up pretty high. We're like above tree level. We realize like there's some clouds coming. And, you know, you don't ever want to be above tree level when there's a storm because lightning is you're the lightning rod. Right. So we're like, okay, you guys, let's get down to lower elevation. And we never like make them think that there's actually a real problem. But we kind of, you know, sense of urgency. So we head down the mountain and this storm comes on us real fast. It just starts pouring down rain almost out of nowhere. It's really hard when you're in the forest to see the sky. And this is Vermont. So it comes up on us. We're like, all right, drop everything. We don't have time to set up tents, like no shelter whatsoever. We get out our rain gear. The kids are a little panicked. We get the tarps out because if these bags get soaked, everything is soaked. So we take care of the gear first. And then the lightning comes. As soon as we hear, like, the rumble of thunder, like, really close, because, you know, we kind of heard it in the background, but when, when we see, like, a big strike nearby, we're like, oh, shit. We look at each other, we go, lightning position, and we're like, all right, you guys, lightning position right now. And <laughs> in training, we taught them that if lightning comes, current goes through the ground. It's not actually coming from the sky. It's striking you through the ground. So it's lightning position is when you sit with your legs in a like triangular position to the ground so that your butt and your feet touch the ground, but your knees don't. So they're kind of up. And then you put your arms to your chest and hug yourself, but you don't let your arms touch the knees. And the whole point of this is to, if lightning strikes the ground around you, it will go up your feet and out your butt instead of up to all your internal organs. And if your hands are touching your knees, then all of a sudden you've created a new current that's going to, like, kill you. Or, like, it's crazy. In theory, it works. But to be completely honest, lightning position is full of shit. If you get struck by lightning, you're going to (laughs) die. So anyway, we're like, lightning position. And we have them all kind of separated out. Like, we don't want two kids next to each other because we don't want two dying, right? (laughs) So we kind of... And I end up kind of in the middle of this circle of guys. Like, Laura and and Evan are on the out near the gear. And I'm surrounded by these guys. And we're like, you know, a few feet apart. And it's just boring. Like water bullets like it hurts it's like that kind of rain like you know and I look up at Urkel and his glasses I can't even see his face and everyone is so miserable hunched over and the lightning is getting closer and closer and I mean it's scary I'm actually legitimately scared right now but I can't show it I look up and I see stoner football guy Ferris Bueller And Urkel, like all the guys immediately around me, I look at their face and they look terrified. It's the first time I've ever seen real fear on their face. They've been really good at hiding it up until this point. And actually at one point, Ferris Bueller goes, 
Mel, are we going to die? He's kidding because he's kind of the jokester, but but he's not. And I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. We're going to be fine. This happens all the time. I know these kids need some sort of reassurance, but I'm like, I don't know what to do. I've been working with kids for a long time, and I'm protective of them in like the way a dad keeps people safe. But I've never been the kind that's like, let me really comfort you right now. And I thought to myself, like, what do these kids need right now? And I look over at Ferris Bueller and I'm like, hey, how does that ball song go? And he just repeated back. He's like, when your balls are sweaty, you need some gold bond, you know, and like started. And then like the other kids started joining in and they all started singing the fucking sweaty ball song. And the next thing you know, like they completely forgot that they were like terrified they were going to die. Because, you know, it's that whole, like, distraction method. And actually, I would be willing to bet that this is probably one of the favorite moments of their fucking life, is singing the ball song in the rain, because it's that thing where adversity brings you together, and they are really bonded by fear. There was just this camaraderie between them of, like, overcoming their fear together through joy and humor. It was actually a really beautiful moment. It's like the first time I saw them and wasn't just like, ugh, these guys. Because I cared about these guys, but I was like, aww. (laughs) It was, like, really cute. They literally just sang the ball song until the rain stopped. And then we just moved on. Like, it wasn't a big deal. We all just got through it. And that's kind of the theme of the company itself, bonding and character building through adversity. And that's totally what happened. And we moved on and, and felt almost, like, more bonded and stronger as a result of it. So... The kids were all pretty close and, you know, bonded a lot after the lightning storm, except I don't give a rat's ass. He's still, like, kind of on his own program. But, you know, they still have their little fights here and they still get annoyed because these kids have been together non-stop. I mean, nobody spends this much time with anybody, you know? So one day they're kind of getting on each other's nerves and stoner quarterback guy. We hear him just, like, snap at the Boy Scout and was like, don't be so gay, dude, or whatever, because he's irritable. And we're like, oh, no, 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 hold on. And we, like, make them all stop, and they hate this. But we, you know, make them talk about it and explain why they can't say it yet again. And he's like, but trying to justify it. Well, I wasn't, like, kind of gay, like, in a condescending way. I was saying he was, like, he's being gay, like, he's acting like a gay person, you know. And it's just, we're like, no. So we sit him down in a circle. We have one of our little talking circles. And I think Evan had been kind of saving this speech for a while. It's one they really needed to hear. And I think it was kind of a a breaking point for him because he has especially no tolerance for homophobia and all that stuff. But he went into this whole thing about why you can't say gay and why you can't say any kind of derogatory language. But then he like goes into this like, I wish I had recorded it and I could play it for every child in America. He goes into this whole thing about being a man. These are teenage boys and being a man is a very important concept to them. And he was just like, if you guys really want to be men, learn how to fucking cry. Learn how to fucking talk about your emotions. Learn how to deal with your anger because behind all that anger is shame and fear. Almost always. You all pretend like you're these tough dudes, these Donkey Kong, you're puffing yourselves up. You're all a bunch of scared dudes who can't admit you're fucking scared. And that's why all your anger is all rooted in fear. So every time you guys get angry and lash out each other, it's actually because you're scared or sad or some other bullshit. 
I know you're scared. And that anger is the only channel that you feel safe, the only outlet, the only emotion that you're allowed to express. And if you don't learn how to communicate with each other and express emotions and stop worrying about feelings being about, that's a girl thing. That's a human thing. Human beings have feelings. There's nothing wrong with crying. You should cry. (laughs) It was hard for them to hear. But it opened up this space where it's like for the first time, they were like, oh, it's almost you could see the lights go on like, oh, so like we could like say what we mean. Because in that moment, Boy Scout pipes in. Yeah, I know what you mean, man. Like, um, so my dad's always talking about how like to be a man, I've got to like want to like sleep with a bunch of girls. He's like, I don't even know if I like girls. Like, I kind of like guys, too. <laughs> this is not something that you hear on an all-boys course normally. Like, you know, we all play it cool because we don't want this kid to feel like what he said wasn't okay. But I couldn't believe he said this. And so I'm like, we're all, me and the other, you know, Laura and Evan are kind of like scanning the rest of the guys to see like how they're receiving this information. And the stoner quarterback all-star boy he goes yeah bro I know what you mean I'm totally bi too oh we were like oh my god oh my god like if I could have clapped I would have because these two fucking kids are the ones who say gay and fag more than any of them I mean they all say it but these two kids were the ones that we were just like you can't say gay you can't say fag and they're both bi I mean maybe they're not bi maybe they're you know it's kind of like or maybe they are but they're admitting that they like men Oh, and because we had created an emotionally safe place for these kids, and maybe because they are enlightened or maybe they're just empathetic or like more mature than we thought, none of them seemed to care. They were all like, okay, here's these kids that I thought were all bullies and mean, and I thought they're going to get their asses kicked by these guys. Granted, these are two of the big guys. Still, it was almost like no one gave a shit. And them saying that actually unlocked something in all of them because that night they all wrestled like played but like where they touch each other because one of the things that I've noticed is that these boys never fucking touch each other ever and wrestling is like a way where it's like they're hugging but fighting they're getting real close to each other because they're also afraid of being called gay all the time right they don't want to get it beat up and then Ferris Bueller the funny kid He decides that they're going to have a musical theater performance. Him and the football player, they put their hair in pigtails and make their shirts into like the Daisy Duke kind, like a bra. And they do like a little song and dance. It's hysterical. But it was like one of the funnest nights ever. And I was like, oh my God, it's like they all feel free. (laughs) Free to be you and me now, you know? All because... Of these two brave kids, we could not believe it. It was like a 180-degree turn. People in general, but especially these kids, they think that you can't hear them because they're in a tent. Like, this is not a concrete wall. It's literally, like, holding a sheet up and then talking behind it. So we would, like, sneak around the tents and, like, eavesdrop on their conversations to make sure they weren't doing drugs or, like, planning a mutiny or something like that, you know? And I started hearing these, like cute little conversations for the first time like 
one of them would be like, I don't know, man, like, I've got, like, all these zits on my face, you know? And the other one's like, whatever, like, fuck that girl. She doesn't like your zits on your face. You know, like, giving each other, like, supportive advice and, like, admitting some insecurities around their acne and stuff like that. And it actually reminded me of when I was a raft guide and military, the guy who had been making all the cellulite comments, who had really liked... One of the things that I really loved about being a woman in the man's world is that intense, when him and I would go on overnight trips together, he would like open his heart to me and tell me things that I know he would never tell these guys. Because I'm one of the guys, but I'm still like a woman. These guys were kind of doing that with each other, which was kind of beautiful because up until then, we'd only overheard like jokes. You know, these guys just constantly make fun of each other. That's like what they're best at. And now they're, like, having little moments of, like, girl advice. Something shifted permanently in this group. Except I don't give a rat's ass. He's still the same. Nothing has changed with this kid. He's still pissed that he's there. He's still a quiet rager. He's still, like, emotionally inaccessible. He's just there. Enduring this fucking trip. While the rest of them are all, like, pretty tight at this point. Again, this is over two weeks that these kids have been together. So now it's time for Solo. Solo has a couple purposes. One of them is to give the kids a break from each other because it's just not healthy to be around people this long. When it comes to day for Solo, it's three days. We sit them all down, you know, in front of us in like a semicircle. And we kind of explain. Actually, Evan does the whole speech because he really wants to do the whole how to, like, this is your rite of passage speech. Because in Western society, we don't really have that for men or women but women kind of like having your period can sometimes be like an anticlimactic red tent experience but guys don't really have anything and he was like you're gonna come out of these woods three days later like men you know and he gave the whole thing like really embrace this you guys are becoming men like he gave this whole speech he like really pumped them up and while he's giving it I don't give a rat's ass is Pulling grass out of, you know, like when someone's really mad, they take fistfuls of grass and he's just like, like he's like mowing the lawn around him with his fists, you know, like pulling hair almost, but with grass. He actually even interrupts Evan's speech and goes, why the fuck we got to do this horse shit? We're like, well, because you do. We literally just explain why, but because you just have to. And he's super mad. So we explain the whole thing. Three days of solo. They can bring as many clothes as they want in case they're warm. But all they get is a sleeping bag, a tiny little uh, Ziploc of maybe a handful of trail mix, a pad and a piece of paper, and a tarp. That's it. No headlamp, nothing else. Now, I don't know very many adults who would ever do this. So a 12 to 15-year-old boy is doing this. is pretty fucking impressive. They're all sitting there, and we blindfold them one by one and take them up to their spots. Now, they don't know where each other are. That's why we blindfold them, and they're pretty close to each other. But we've scouted all this out beforehand. So we're like, okay, we're going to put this kid here, this kid here. Like, we knew we strategically placed them. And we explained the rules, too. We're like, if any of you guys get caught talking to each other, going and visiting anybody, leaving your spot, you fail solo and you fail the course. Oh, they get a whistle. I mean, they always have a whistle on them. We're like, if something happens, blow your whistle. We're not that far away. We're going to come check on you. We'll hear it. But do not blow this whistle unless it's an emergency. And if you blow the whistle and it's not an emergency, you fail solo. You get sent home. 
I mean, those are huge stakes because some of these kids, the consequences are like going to juvie. You can't fail solo. So like we set up this whole thing, right? And then we take them one by one to their camping places. And I take, I don't give a rat's ass to his place. And he is not happy. I mean, this kid is, you know, his quiet rage is not quite so quiet anymore. Like, and he's, but he's not just like rageful. He's like nervous and he's like sweating. I'm like, okay, so this is your spot. You know, I'll come check on you later. And he like, you know, throws his bag down and he's like, I can't stay here. My stomach hurts. He like grabs his stomach and like says his stomach hurts, which I'm like, this is the first I've heard of this. There's something else going on here. And I'm like, all right, here, I'll tell you what. Why don't you, you know, get settled in. I'll come and check on you in a little bit. It's going to be fine. So I leave him, and then I go, like, you know, over the next couple hours, we check on all the kids. And Urkel, the little dweeb, he has made a chart with his pencil and paper about how many M&Ms he can eat every day at lunch, dinner. (laughs) The kid is so organized. It's kind of brilliant. (laughs) Very disciplined kid. The pothead football player, like... He's literally smoking a dandelion when we show up. He's doing his classic, like, I don't care. I'm just, like, laid-back pothead dude. Pigpen is already asleep on his boots as a pillow. The kid's a mess. He's done nothing. Hasn't even tried to build a fort. Boy Scout, on the other hand, has built a whole fucking fort. He's amazing at it. And when I go back up to check on I Don't Give a Rat's Ass, he is worse. His shirt is off. He's pacing, and then he sees me, and he immediately grabs his side. He's like, I, I, I got to get out of here. I can't, you know, and none of his symptoms make sense. He's clearly just making all this shit up, but at the same time, like, I know that it's emotional, but I don't want to be like a helicopter parent. So many parents, they don't push their kids, and kids never get a chance to prove how tough they are, right? So I'm like, look, you know what? It's going to be fine. I have to, like, talk them down. But I basically convince him, like, don't worry, I'll come check on you again at night when the sun goes down, blah, blah, blah. So I leave and I go down and now it's like party time. Like, you know, the three of us, we're on the clock 24 hours a day. Seven. I mean, I'm listening for zippers all night, so I don't even get to sleep because every time they go up to piss, you hear a zipper zip, and you're like, are they running away or taking a piss? We're exhausted. So this is our time. Phil has actually left like a package for us with fresh vegetables like organic chocolate from Trader Joe's like we have like a care package for us to really kind of take care of ourselves and when you're taking care of other people you need that and also drops off a box for the party afterwards the bonfire after solo so we're all like cooking and treating our blisters and just hanging out it's getting dark like the sun is almost set entirely and I hear a fucking whistle and we're like Oh, no. Like, because again, a whistle is a big fucking deal. So I run towards the whistle. I get to where it's coming from, and it's stoner quarterback. But he's just sitting there chilling out. And I was like, what the fuck, dude? What's the emergency? He's like, no, 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 it's not me. It's not me. It's up there. Someone is losing their shit. Oh, no. It's, I don't give a rat's ass. It's like towards his camp. So I run up there with my headlamp on. It looks like a horror movie. There are holes in the ground all around his little campsite. Like somebody was digging their way to the other side of the planet. Just burrowing. All of the trees directly around his backpack were stripped entirely of their bark as high as the arm could reach. 
he's losing his mind. This kid is not okay. <laughs> What's going on, dude? And he was like, I got to get out of here. I can't be here. I need to go to the hospital. You know, just like anything he can say to get out of there. This is like my maternal thing kicks in and I'm like, this kid can't be here. And also, it's a liability. Like, what if it's appendicitis or something like that? And so I'm like, all right. I take him down the mountain and the three of us discuss what to do. And we basically take him to urgent care. Or I do, because I'm the runner. So we decide that we're going to take him to urgent care, but, you know, it's already dark. It's actually going to put me and him at risk to hike out miles in the dark to a road. So we let him sleep, like, close, like, within eye shot of us, and he agrees, and he's, like, calmed down some, but he's still, like, holding his side and, like, really freaking out and just... There's still something wrong, but he seems a lot calmer now, but it's that thing when you have a kid who lies about a condition, they kind of have to go with the story. Do you know what I mean? Like, he seems visibly completely different now because he's not alone on this mountain. But he knows that he has to keep up the act. So the next morning, I hike out and do the satellite. (laughs) Phil never smiles. Like, this is kid five now? He picks us up at the trailhead. We go to the same urgent care, actually. And, of course, the doctor's like, Oh, look who it is. You didn't punch any trees, did you? I was like, no, 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 it's not that bad. Just maybe some stomach issues. They take us to a room and leave us there, right? So we're sitting in this room together and, you know, he's totally, this is my first time alone with this kid, other than the conversations at his campsite when he was freaking out. I've never actually been alone just with him and his demeanor is entirely different. He's actually like way more relaxed and like just that front is completely dropped now in front of me he's sitting on the table with the white paper and he's got this I don't give a rat's ass shirt on and his jeans and his shirt are just almost black with so much dirt and he shifts on the table and there's like smudges all over it I point I'm like dude look how dirty you are and he looks down and he like smiles and like kind of laughs this is the first time I've ever heard this guy like laugh We have, like, a good laugh about how fucking gross we are in this really sterile environment. Like, both of us look disgusting. And then the doctor, like, does the x-rays and whatever. And the doctor, like, pulls me aside without him and is like, there's nothing wrong with this kid. And I was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) He's like, I mean, I don't know, like, constipation? And I was like, no, there's nothing wrong with him. This is purely emotional, I'm sure. So... When the doctor comes in with, and all three of us are there, and I was like, yeah, it looks like you're good to go. It's probably just constipation, you know, because I don't want him to know that I know it's not constipation. <laughs> so then we walk back to camp. Phil drops us off on the trail head again, and we're walking back. And again, this kid's just totally different. Like, it's, just, it's like having a different kid. I don't even know this guy. We're just hiking, and just out of nowhere, he just starts talking to me. You know, he starts, like, just asking strange questions about how you get in touch with the out. Like, how do you know what's going on in the outside world or whatever, you know? And I was like, well, we had a satellite phone. That's how we got you down here. And he's like, man, I wish I could call my mom. And I'm like, oh, really? Why? You know, just to make sure she knows that you're okay. And he's like, just make sure she's okay. She's with that fucking asshole. And I try to play it cool because I don't want to be like, what asshole? And I'm like, oh, who are you talking about? Like, your dad? And he's like, no, fuck that. Fucking stepdad. 
Fucking asshole thinks he can fucking beat her up. Not now, man. I'm old now. I can fucking take that fucker. And he just goes into this whole quiet rage-filled speech about this man who beats his mom and he takes the punches for now because he's big enough to. And he's not there now. He's like her bodyguard. And it's been two weeks. It occurs to me, oh my God, he's afraid his mom is dead. She's with an, clearly an abusive man. This kid has become the, her fucking protector. And now he's probably so full of guilt and shame and like he feels like he's abandoned her. He doesn't even know if she's alive. He can't call her. No wonder he's a mess. No wonder he's pulling grass out and like angry all the time. Oh my God, it breaks my heart. Like immediately he shuts that window. He opened that window to let me into his little world. And, and then I tried to ask, well, like, what do you, and boom, shut. Like, we're not talking about it anymore. But he let me in enough to help me understand what the fuck his problem is. So when we get back to camp, the idea of putting this kid on top of a mountain by himself with this going on, I couldn't do it. We discussed it for a little bit. And then I was like, this guy has been the adult in his life, his whole life. He's never been felt protected and safe. So... Why would we put him up there alone? He's been on a fucking solo his whole life. He doesn't need to be on solo. What he needs is to feel like supported and protected and nurtured. And like this kid's fucking staying right near us. And so we made a decision that he would quote unquote stay on solo by not talking to us. We wouldn't interact with him at all. But he was right next to us, like 10 feet from us the whole time. So over the next couple days... It's like him and I had this inside thing where I would like make eyes at him and just give him a nod like, what's up? How you doing? He'd like shrug or it's like he actually liked me now. He's a totally different kid. And then when it came time for the solo to end, we have to bring all of these kids back. We basically are going to have a party for them. We never have fires because that's just part of our policy. You don't need fires in the wilderness, and it's too labor-intensive. So tonight we have a fire, which is a big deal. And we have hot dogs we're going to roast on the fire. We have marshmallows. We have everything for s'mores. We have Coke, like Coca-Cola. Like, these kids haven't had anything good. They have nothing but, like, pasta and, like, fucking gross, like, that. And we're going to have, like, hot food, right? And so we bring them down one by one, and we basically go with the storyline that, like, I don't give a rat's ass was like the first one we took off solo. He's just the first one there. So we pull them one by one. They take their blindfold off. And these kids, when they take the blindfold off, they look so different. Instead of these big puffy chests, King Kong, like, yo, bro. They are relaxed. Their heads are high. Their posture is good. Instead of this false bravado bullshit, they're just totally confident. Because they all nailed that solo. And they know their parents would never do something like that. So they're actually tougher than their fucking every adult they know in their life. And that really gives them a sense of esteem that I've never seen any of them really embrace. And they're so happy to see each other. It's like they're like family at this point. These are their brothers. We celebrate. They're like gold bond you know they're bartering chocolate for gold bond like they're all like finally have something to treat their sweaty ball and i still don't understand how gold bond works honestly but they're obsessed with it they're pouring chocolate in each other's mouths like i pretend like it's calm ah! like they're just being their gross like joyful self and it's 
It's actually one of the funnest nights of my life. It was like one of the best parties I've ever been to. One of the best memories I have of any job I've ever done is like the level of joy that all of us had. I don't give a rat's ass wasn't his normal, quiet, rageful self, but he had definitely lightened up. But he wasn't quite there yet with, you know, he's not going to change overnight, but he's calm for the first time. Maybe he doesn't know what's happening to his mom right now, but he knows he has three adults here that are going to have his back and you like are going to support him and care about him when he's been the one who's had to be in that role for too long. The kid's 15. What the fuck? It's too much pressure for any child. So yeah, the rest of the course is, uh, it's kind of a game changer. I mean, they really step into their roles as like, we, we'd have explained all along, like if you act like children, you're going to get treated like children. If you act like adults, we're going to treat you like adults and give you more freedom. So by the end of the course, these kids were running the course. We were in the back, sometimes far behind them, but we trusted them. They had the maps. They each had their own roles. Like they were fucking nailing this thing. It was, it was really impressive. On the very last day of the course, we have like a big, huge debrief where we all sit in a circle and we all go around and tell each person what they're doing. Phil called it the shit sandwich. It's like the thing you need to work on is like the shit, but you put it within bread that's like nice and fluffy and like, oh, it's good. And this takes a long time for each person to comment about this for each person. So everyone's got a chance in the hot seat. With Urkel, the kids were like, dude, stop trying to impress us so much. Stop saying yo. They were all like really being brutally honest with each other. With Pigpen, you know, we were like, dude, you're funny. Like, just be who you are. You're weird. Embrace being weird, bro. Stop trying, you know, like, you don't need to bust your hand on a tree trying to. It was really super thoughtful advice and also like really lovely feedback about appreciating each other. Now, the three of us have to sit in the hot seat, too. So my turn came up, you know, the shit sandwich, like the bread part, you know, they all were something along the lines of like, you're so funny, uh, like you're a really great problem solver, like, you know, you're actually really empathetic and you care and like a lot of things that kind of surprised me because I'm like, I am. And then the shit part of the sandwich, though, Urkel is the one who said it. I mean, they all kind of said a version of it, but Urkel was like, you know, you don't have to pretend like you don't like us. We know you like us. We know you care about us. So stop pretending like you don't give a fuck. You really hide behind your humor way too much. We know you're cool. (laughs) That one fucking stung, man. The cool girl, right? Because I started thinking about how long I'd been the cool girl. I mean, I still get it. Even now, on Tinder, every fucking guy's like, you seem so cool. (laughs) Like, you know, because I do like these things that guys do, right? But the thing about the cool girl is it's really fucking lonely at the top. There's only room for one cool girl. And being cool means you act like men and you shit on women to do it. You know, you can be cool, but to be the cool girl, you have to deny everything about you that's feminine that's vulnerable, that's maternal, in order to be like one of the bros. And at this point in my life, I wasn't quite as self-destructive, but I was really suffering from a lot of things. I'd never been in a relationship. I'd never fallen in love. I'd never let myself fall in love. I was like, as Evan had told me, I was like the most cool and fearless. Those two things I've been told for so long because I'd really convinced everybody. I was like, 
pretty damn good at convincing people, but it was all a lie. Because I'm like bulimic and fucking terrible dudes, you know? Like I was really self-destructive. And I started thinking about it. These guys use anger to channel all of their shit, their shame, their fear, and all that stuff. But women, we're not allowed to be angry. So instead, I channel all that rage goes inward. And my front isn't anger. My front is like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Like, like, you know, like all the defense mechanisms of being acceptable and likable and cool. While at the same time, I was throwing up, just not taking care of myself, not respecting my body. I just, that violence, that rage went inward. And it was masked with this, look how cool and how funny I am. And it's all bullshit because I'm just as insecure as these fucking 13-year-old boys. And actually, they've become more vulnerable than me. Like, they know how to talk about their feelings now, and I don't. Like, I taught them how to talk about their feelings, but I can't do it with people in my life. (laughs) So it was brutal, man. That was a brutal day for me to get schooled by the most toxically masculine 13-year-old boys on the planet. (laughs) I'm a toxically masculine feminist. Here I am, this big, tough feminist who hates women. Internalized misogyny. Fucking poster child for maternalized misogyny. But in the flavor of a tomboy, you know what I mean? It's like, oh my God. So after this trip ended, I actually don't know what happened with the boys. Maybe they went back to being the same fucking assholes they were when they showed up. Or maybe this trip actually changed them for the good. But what this trip did to me was I got help for my eating shit. I you know, was going to therapy, really worked on all my issues that kept me from ever like having any real intimate relationships, especially with men. For the last 10 years, I've been really working hard at that. And I've actually started dating, like dating, not just fucking. You know, not like one night stands and like hate fucking and all the stuff I used to do, but actually like dating, even fallen in love a couple times. And then last year I wrote an article, actually, I've, you know, I've been doing comedy and writing and stuff in New York and L.A. for the last 12 years. And last year I wrote an article for Outside Magazine about this very topic, the toxically masculine feminist. And they actually ended up using it in the trainings in some of these companies to show what sexual harassment looks like and what toxic masculinity within the workforce looks like. It's actually pretty cool. But one of the unexpected surprises as a result of writing this article was that military, this guy that I'd rafted with, who I'd always really liked and gotten along with, the guy who would open up to me when we were camping in the tent together, but who would ridicule women's cellulite during a time when I was throwing up five times a day. He sent me this note on Facebook that was so sweet and basically said I'm so sorry I had no idea you were hurting I had no idea you're going through any of that you're one of the strongest women I've ever met and you helped me change my mind around traditional gender roles you taught me more than I've ever could have taught you like it was just really really sweet he talked about what it was like being a guy back then. I mean, he came from a military background and he was just like, unfortunately, toxic masculinity is such a big part of man's culture and it was clearly a big part of the raftings. He was so woke, but also like genuinely sorry. And this guy is raising two boys 
And he's like a stay-at-home dad. And actually, I feel so hopeful about our future. Because, <laughs> you know, it'd be easy to be like, oh, these all these fucking assholes. Blah, blah, blah. But, like, people change. So now, you know, we're, we have, like, a new rekindled friendship. This article brought us together. So after this job, you know, I mean, I'm still, like, a tomboy, right? But I, like, embrace, I, like, sometimes I'll wear, like, lip gloss or chapstick. And, like, maybe, like, little, little bit of earrings, you know? On a special occasion, I'll wear a skirt. <laughs> but I'm still a fucking tomboy. I love getting dirty. And I still work in men's industries. The film industry, comedy, I can't escape it. I just, I'm good at it. And I love working and being around men. But I don't try to be like one of the boys anymore. In the film industry, you'd be hanging out, all these PAs be talking, oh, I want to fuck that girl. Oh, yeah, you should put a bag over her head first. But now I defend the girls with my own, like, funny comeback. But I don't shit on the women to get cool girl status anymore. And I date and I talk about my feelings instead of being super fucking passive aggressive. And I don't say cunt and bitch. And I certainly don't say my favorite word anymore, pussy. Unless I'm like, hey, you want to eat this? (laughs) And then I'm all about saying pussy, because it loves to be eaten. for this week's episode folks this is the heavy behind me now we're better as one without evil on our tongue and we just heard from melanie hamlet again you should check out her article called men have no friends and women bear the burden in harper's bazaar I also want to give a shout out to Brad Lawrence and John LaSala for editing the text of that story and to Jeff Barr for doing the sound design and music editing and putting the whole thing together. Don't forget, there is a ton of incredible bonus content that you can find at our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. There are Ask Me Anything recordings with me. There are check-ins where I interview some of the people behind the scenes here. There's bonus stories every week. There are the ad-free versions of the show. There's just so much to find at patreon.com slash risk. And it really, really means the world to us that our fans... You know, pitch in a little bit, whether it be $1 a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, in order to help keep risk running. 
Also, you can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. It's only a buck ninety nine if you don't have like oh fuck me fuck me. This is risk. <laughs>